Thanks for listening to the ArchBridge podcast. I'm your host, Ben Wilthering, and today I'll be talking with Emily Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton is a senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She has authored numerous academic articles and policy papers, including appearances in USA Today, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times. She also contributes to the blog Market Urbanism and earned her PhD in economics from George Mason University. Emily, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Ben. Great to be talking with you. Thank you. So one of the things that we talk a lot about here at the Archbridge Institute is how we can lift barriers to human flourishing or how we can lift some of the barriers that stand in the way for people achieving their full potential. Uh, And when we think about employment opportunities or educational opportunities, so much of that is based on where you live, not to mention building wealth and, and assets and things like that. So obviously housing plays a major role here. So for people that aren't really that familiar, can you give us kind of a quick overview of you know, what you've been working on in terms of urban economics and housing policy and zoning and land use and where things are going wrong, which I gather is a lot of places. And then if there are any places, maybe where things are going right as well. Sure. Um... Local land use restrictions are the the main focus of my research, um, which is kind of a parochial area of policy that probably a lot of people don't follow closely or may not even be familiar with. But these rules um, restrict what type of real estate development can be built where, and they are pervasive across almost every um, city and town in the U.S., And what these rules do in terms of housing is limit the total amount of housing that can be built in a locality in some cases through rules like minimum lot size requirements that say that every single house has to sit on a yard of a certain size. So at some point, you're just not going to be able to fit any more houses in the, the area of a given locality. Uh, And these rules also tend to make it more costly to build housing. Um, So in places where land is really expensive, for example, parking requirements that mean that every housing unit has to come with a certain number of parking spots can be really expensive to um, provide and in turn drive up the cost of renting an apartment or buying a house. Um, Additionally, there are a lot of barriers to multifamily housing in the U.S., um, with many localities dedicating the majority of their land where housing can be built to single-family housing, uh, which is the most expensive type of housing in general uh, because it doesn't allow multiple households to share high-cost land. I see. Okay. And so this is... You know, when people ask, you know, you you remember a few years back, like the whole like the rent is too damn high thing. Um, and, you know, I, I think we've all kind of experienced that, particularly in these urban centers. I mean, just from my own background, I grew up in the Bay Area uh, in California. I grew up in Fremont, which is like East Bay, kind of South East Bay. So, so still, you know, like 45 minutes away at the minimum from getting into San Francisco or even Oakland or San Jose. And I remember I went back there a, a few years ago and one of the houses there, it was just a, you know, one bedroom condemned house, um, you know, a single family house and someone bought it for 
you know, $1.2 million and they just demolished it and they're building over again. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, you know, that same house where I live here now in Anchorage would have been like, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars maybe. Um, so that, that was insane to me to see that discrepancy. Certainly. Yeah. When you, when you have locality after locality, implementing restrictive zoning rules that drive up the cost of housing, as in the Bay Area, um, more extremely than, than anywhere else in the U.S. Um, you just get whole regions where people are facing uh, both extreme price pressures in their household budgets uh, and also making really unpleasant trade-offs, like having extremely long commutes in order to be able to both afford housing and get to where their job is located um, that can really diminish quality of life for people living there. And in part, as a result of these land use restrictions that limit the amount of people who can live in some of the country's most productive regions, we're seeing people moving less than they did in uh, previous decades, at least prior to the pandemic. We're in a bit of a, a strange situation right now. Um, and we're also seeing less income mobility um, and less income convergence across states. So it used to be the case that people were moving to the states where incomes were highest and in turn pushing incomes down in those states a little bit as the labor supply increased. But as we're seeing less geographic movement, we're also seeing less income convergence. Yeah, and I I definitely want to come back to that a little bit later, but uh, for sure, you know, being able to move to a new job opportunity, that's that's certainly been on the decline. The, uh, the Economic Innovation Group puts out a, uh, I think it's a yearly study called the Distressed Communities Index. Uh, and they've been basically tracking sort of what you're talking about, where you have clusters of these super high productive areas that are, you know, accounting for most of the job growth in the United States and, and most of the personal income growth. Uh, in the United States. And, uh, you know, if you look at the GDP numbers, you know, especially I'm thinking since, you know, the since the 2008 downturn and the subsequent recovery, right? So like 2008, 2009, if you kind of take that as your starting point, if you look at the macro, you know, zoomed out GDP and personal income, trends are doing okay. But then when you start looking at that breakdown more regionally, what you see is, these super high productive clusters are accounting for almost all of that growth and job creation. And then you have these typically more rural areas that are still struggling. Either they're about the same uh, in terms of job and income levels as 2008, or they've even dipped below. Uh, and that's obviously people are, are struggling in those areas. And I wonder, you know, there's this 10,000 foot wall called cost of living um, that's preventing them from really moving into those areas. So I think this is definitely a really uh, a touchy subject, a really big deal uh, as people are trying to look for for new jobs and new opportunities. But it kind of sounds like we have a handle on the problem here. There's just not enough supply to meet the demand or specifically not enough supply to meet the demand at those lower levels maybe of um, cost. So is this has this always been a problem? Has this gotten worse in the past decade or two, or is this just just now? Why are we hearing a little bit more about this now 
versus, you know, maybe back in the 90s? Yeah. um, So zoning um, first came to the U.S. in the early 20th century um, and became very widespread by, say, the 1960s. Um, But it's um, it used to be the case that once um, one locality started becoming exclusionary and a difficult place to build more housing, there was always the next locality over that was was welcoming growth and welcoming developers who wanted to provide more housing. But a couple of factors have started to stand in the way of that pattern. One is just that as regions have gotten much bigger and demand to live in certain parts of the country has increased a lot, it's just no longer um, pleasant or feasible to keep expanding commuting zones out and out and out um, where people, you know, have super long driving commutes into job centers. And then secondly, um, the economist Bill Fischel has done a, a lot of work on the political economy of, of nimbyism and the, the factors that stand in the way of housing construction. And he identifies the emergence of the environmental movement in the 1970s as a, a key turning point where homeowners started objecting not just to development that would be right next to them, but development that might be anywhere within their region um, on environmental grounds, that this this new housing um, would threaten the, the open space and, and habitat around them. Um, so since the 1970s, there's certainly been um, an increase in the effect of land use regulations on housing markets. Um, and it just compounds over time as the supply of housing is held relatively fixed in some of the places where people most want to live, but demand continues increasing. Right. And that's definitely true as the economy is changing, um, you know, and obviously knowledge work is replacing a lot of the old you know, sort of manufacturing uh, style jobs. Not that there isn't, you know, growing manufacturing output, but the employment that goes along with that has declined, uh, you know, in the past several decades. Um, so it seems like we kind of understand the problem here. There is not enough housing to meet the demand in these areas where there's these opportunities. You cited the environmental movement and sort of the NIMBY stuff. So can you define what is a NIMBY and um, how how big of a group is that? Or do, how much does that vary maybe by by region? Yeah, NIMBY stands for Not In My Backyard, and um, of course, no one is uh, going to be subject to a developer building housing literally in their backyard that they own, Um, but it it refers to people not wanting housing development in their neighborhood or right next to them or in their town or city as a whole. Um, And... This um, the, the group of people who are the most outspoken NIMBYs is probably quite small. There's been some really interesting research by Katherine Einstein and um, some of her co-authors looking at what they call neighborhood defenders in the Boston region. 
And these neighborhood defenders are people who don't just oppose um, development that might be specifically environmentally unfriendly or development that will um, harm their property values, for example, but they tend to oppose any change, even change that almost everyone would agree would be a, a positive change for a neighborhood, like an abandoned industrial site becoming condos, for example. Um, and these, these neighborhood defenders uh, make it a habit of making their voice heard in opposition to new development. Uh, and their demographics tend to be relatively wealthy, uh, relatively older um, homeowners, and they tend to be white rather than um, minorities in the communities where they live. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I think looking back, I think we all kind of might know someone like that who <laughs> sort of fits that profile and just doesn't want things to change at all, you know, in sort in sort of the area that they grew up or that they're living in for now. So I guess, you know, one question that I think about when we're talking about these issues, you know, first of all, it's, it is sort of a property rights issue in the sense that, you know, people who are developers or they own this land, you know, they want to earn money on it. They want to, they want to increase their investment and they want to increase that value. Um, so is it just a, a property rights issue or is there, are there other ways that we should kind of be looking at this? Well, there, there's kind of been a change in the way that people think about property rights in land use, I would say. Um, I mean, the, the typical property rights framework is that one person owns this piece of, of land and therefore has certain rights um, to, to use that land as they see fit. But it's not uncommon for people these days to say, well, what about my right to... Um, keeping my neighborhood exactly as it is, which, uh, of course, becomes untied from the, the property that the person in question actually owns um, and comes as a result of, of limiting other people's property rights. Um, and it's, it's really pretty unique to housing, I would say, where people have this conception of a, a right to consistency. Like, if there's an innovation that's going to reduce the value of an existing business, we don't say that business owner has a right to a constant policy that's going to prevent that innovation um, in most cases. Right. Yeah. It makes me kind of think of like the old taxi medallion system in New York. That was, you know, big. yeah, yeah they're worth, you know, gobs of money. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have an uh, upstart like Uber, you know, kind of going around those rules. And uh, all of a sudden those like finite number of medallions are worth a lot less. Um, and uh, so you have that core group that has that interest in trying to protect their value uh, at the expense of everyone else. And that kind of sounds like a similar thing going on here. Mm -hmm. So, we kind of understand some of the, the main dynamics. You mentioned things like minimum lot sizes uh, and different parking requirements and some zoning things. Uh, and then also you said that the environmental push was sort of used to head off some of this new construction or new development. How, how does, what are the mechanisms for that happening? I mean, is there uh, like a multi-step process that developers usually go through? And so can you describe sort of like, how 
a neighborhood defender might actually be able to be successful in like a actual policy sense. Yeah, so there are first the the rules on the books, the zoning ordinance that says what can be built on each piece of land within a jurisdiction. Um, and in some cases, those rules on the books really do um, govern quite directly what can or cannot be built. And there's certainly a lot of, of lobbying um, by uh, homeowners and other interest groups within jurisdictions to either maintain those rules exactly as they are today or to um, see changes that either liberalize or reduce the amount of development that local zoning ordinances permit. Um, but then there's also um, a, a permit approval process. Anytime someone wants to build a new housing development or a, a new development of any kind. And in some cases, that approval process is straightforward. And if a project complies with the rules on the book, then the developer will be able to go through a predictable, generally quick process and get the the um, building permit to build what they want to build. But if um, if the permit approval process includes subjective requirements like um, design review, for example, that means that some board of people has to approve of what a new building is going to look like. Design review. And, and you're not talking about like a safety thing for like structural soundness. You're talking about like like a look of a building. Exactly. And that that decision gets handed over to some committee of people that don't own it or okay. <laughs> right, right. A, a committee that has to um, sign off or at least provide input on whether or not they they like a new proposal's uh, architecture and, and what it's going to look like. Wow. Um, and then there are also approval processes that require each new development to get input from the people who live near it. Um, and this, this is more common in more expensive, more exclusionary parts of the country. And this is the process that really can empower um, neighborhood defenders to insert their voice into the process of determining what will or will not be allowed to be built, regardless of what the zoning ordinance may say. So it sounds like a lot of these issues are at the local level, uh, but obviously, you know, you've you've written a lot on on how the federal government can encourage some of these reforms that would allow more zoning. I'm sure there's some state level things uh, that are active here. So can you can you describe a little bit of sort of at what level of government should these reforms be taking place? Uh, or is there a role for sort of all three levels or how, how do you think about that? Where do you engage on this mostly? Yeah, the, a complicated and, and very important question. Um, primarily, the, the rules that limit what can be built and that drive up the cost of development come um, from, from local level governments. But in, other, in some cases, there are important state rules that also um, constrain development. Um, and in some ways, uh, it makes a lot of sense for, for these decisions to be made 
locally um, at, at the, the lowest level of government possible um, because there is some element of, of local knowledge about, um, for example, which parts of a jurisdiction are well served by infrastructure and can accommodate growth versus which parts are not currently well served by needed infrastructure to make development feasible. But on the other hand, because the, the costs of new development are very concentrated, uh, typically, by, typically felt most by people who live right next to where a development will be in terms of increased traffic or more people parking on the street in a certain neighborhood, um, and the, the benefits of development are very diffuse. They go to people who we don't even know who they are at the time a development is, is proposed, you know, who knows who's, who's going to live there, who's going to have a job building that development, uh, what firms are going to be able to hire new employees because they have a, a larger um, labor force that can now live close to their, their firms. Um, because of this, this mismatch between the, the where the costs and benefits of development are felt, Localities uh, tend to permit too little development, particularly housing. So for that reason, state policymakers who, who have a broader view of both the costs and the benefits of development have a role to step in and set some limits on the extent to which localities can constrain housing development. We've seen some examples of this with Oregon in 2019 becoming the first state to preempt single-family zoning across many of the jurisdictions in the state. So now uh, many Oregon localities are required to permit duplexes and in some cases fourplexes where they only permitted single-family development previously. Um, and there have also been some, some red state examples. Um, uh, Arkansas and Texas, for example, have set uh, limits on um, local design requirements, like kind of, kind of like the, uh, the design review that we were talking about. But these state bills in Arkansas and Texas preempt localities from implementing design requirements like uh, requirements for brick cladding, for example, that aren't related to health and safety. Okay, so these localities have gotten really specific, it sounds like, in what they're going to allow. And, you know, to your point, obviously, you know, you have a group of people who are obviously taxpaying uh, residents of a community. Uh, they're going to be plugged in more to the local government. They're probably paying, you know, property taxes and other taxes. Uh, and when they get put up against, you know, a lobbying group of potential, perhaps maybe future residents, that's obviously not as effective in getting, uh, you know, their interests heard. So I, I think it's really important to keep that state level stuff in mind. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask, you know, as I've, I'm not by any means an expert on this issue, but I'm not totally unfamiliar with it either. And what I've been hearing a lot uh, has been Houston as an example of kind of the gold standard for where cities should go in terms of their land use and zoning rules. Is that, does Houston deserve that reputation? Or can you talk a little bit about Houston and, 
and whether they're uh, overrated or maybe underrated? Uh, well, I think gold standard is is maybe going a bit far, but there's certainly a lot that that localities can learn from Houston in terms of, of being a city uh, and a region that accommodates growth, uh, makes room for new residents in all types of, of different housing. Um, and it's, it's really impressive that with the growth Houston has seen in recent decades, the median house price in Houston is below the national median. Um, so they, they are a, an example that high demand and growth doesn't necessarily mean a, a region has to become expensive if the, the local uh, processes and rules allow for um, for development and allow for home builders to respond to increases in demand. Um, the, the Houston region is generally thought of as, as accommodating growth through new greenfield development at the outskirts of the region. And it's certainly true that there is um, lots of new suburban and exurban um, development in the Houston region. But they've also made some important reforms that make it easier to build um, closer to, to downtown and to job centers in Houston. And those include um, minimum lot size reforms. Um, so prior to 1999, the minimum lot size requirement in the city of Houston was 5,000 square feet. And in 1999, policymakers reduced that down to effectively 1,400 square feet, which means that now um, three townhouses can be built on the site where only a single-family house was allowed um, previously. Uh, and then in uh, 2013, this minimum lot size reform was expanded. Um, it, initially, it covered the area within the I-610 um, loop in, in Houston. And then it was expanded in 2013 to cover the whole city. And there have been tens of thousands of townhouses uh, built as a result of this reform that wouldn't have been permitted otherwise. Uh, and also, Houston doesn't have use zoning, so it's it's the only large city in the U.S. that doesn't have areas that are designated exclusively for commercial development or exclusively for residential development uh, of, of different densities. So this means that multifamily housing in Houston can be built in, in many, many parts of the city. And additionally, um, as commercial uses become um, less profitable for whatever reason where they're located, um, residential development can take over um, that space and provide new housing if that's in greater demand than commercial space. And does that mean that in Houston you could have sort of like commercial businesses intermixed with residential areas? Because that's something I don't really see in many parts of the country. Right. Um, and that's often something that people um, use to deride Houston and say that it's a model that n nowhere else should follow, is that you could have a, a business um, in a block of, of otherwise single-family houses. People don't like that? 
<laughs> well, um, there, there are some funny examples in Houston of, um, like, auto repair, for example, um, close to houses that people um, may not like for, for understandable reasons. But um, one thing that we see across the country is home buyers are willing to pay a big premium for walkable development. Um, and at the same time, while this is homeowners preference as expressed by, by property values, um, local rules that limit development to exclusively residential prevent any type of, of walkability because you can't have businesses built close to homes. Um, but that's not a problem in a lot of Houston neighborhoods where you can get that, that mix um, and that proximity between residential and commercial uses. Yeah, I well, first of all, I'm impressed that you knew all of those facts about Houston, including <laughs> the specific years when these things changed off the top <laughs> of your head. Uh, but I remember, you know, I um, my my wife's sister lives in Baltimore, and uh, I remember visiting one time, and we were, you know, walking from her house. You know, a, you know, a block or two down the street and there's like a restaurant over there and, you know, things like that. And I was thinking, you know, to your point about walkability, it's like, that's awesome. Like, I wish I wish there were more places like that. I love, you know, having so whether it's, you know, maybe a bodega or a convenience store or, you know, things things like that. I mean, I kind of get maybe if you wouldn't want to have like a pig farm or something, but like, you know, for regular and it wouldn't make sense to put one there anyway. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. But um yeah, I think that's interesting. I'm just I'm surprised that more localities haven't gone in that direction, especially since, as you said, walkability is such a desirable thing. I mean, it certainly is for me. Uh, that was a big part of where I was looking to to get a house. Right, right. And Baltimore is um, an example of, of one of the relatively few places in the country that saw a lot of development prior to any type of, of zoning or even any type of land use regulations being on the books. So there are um, lots of examples in Baltimore of very compact, walkable, mixed-use development um, that, that people pay more to live near in Baltimore relative to um, more homogenous parts of the city um, that, that just isn't allowed today to be built uh, from scratch. You, you can only, for the most part, go in and find the neighborhoods that were built prior to rules that ban that type of development. Yeah, that's, that's too bad. Okay, so like not only are these rules preventing people from being able to move across states, move into more productive areas. It also makes them, you know, sucky you know, because you can't, <laughs> you can't uh, do these cool things that, you know, and it's, you know, obviously people can choose. Uh, it's not like there's no single family houses in Houston. Um, Certainly. And, yeah. um, so, well, I, you mentioned earlier that uh, Texas and Arkansas and Oregon were a few of the states that had enacted some of these, um, preemption laws that would sort of uh, maybe rein back some of the worst impulses from these uh, localities that were trying to restrict uh, new development. Um, what what do you think is on the docket for 2021? Have you been keeping a pulse on sort of if there's any state or local reforms that you think are particularly notable? Is this sort of gaining steam or, or are we 
are the NIMBYs winning? There, there's certainly um, momentum at the state level. Uh, I would say inspired by the Oregon example and also the California experience where the, the state policymakers in California have passed several laws that make it easier for homeowners across the state to build accessory dwelling units, which um, refers to like a backyard cottage or um, an attachment or a basement apartment that um, allows homeowners to build an extra unit that they will then um, rent out to either a tenant or um, provide use it to provide space for a family member, for example. Right, like a mother-in-law suite type thing. Exactly, yeah. And accessory dwelling units are, are not going to solve the housing crisis, and certainly not in California, uh, probably not in, in any part of the country, but they are uh, one important step toward allowing uh, more housing to be built in a way that people can see benefits them because either as a homeowner, they might want the, the extra income or the flexibility that being allowed to build an accessory dwelling unit provides, um, or people can see themselves um, as, as students or young adults or retirees wanting to have this small um, rental option. Um, so some of the other states uh, where we've we've seen housing bills um, being introduced and in some cases moving forward are um, Nebraska, Virginia, and Maryland that um, introduced bills similar to Oregon's preemption on single-family zoning, uh, and also Vermont had a, a bill um, that would have limited single-family zoning. Um, and there have also been some other areas of um, policymakers looking at allowing um, more housing to be built in, in different forms. Um, Oregon and New Hampshire have bills this session that would set limits on minimum lot size requirements. Um, and then uh, Massachusetts actually recently just passed a law that was an interesting case um, because a lot of these state bills have gotten just tons of, of media attention and been you know, kind of like lightning rods of, um, of views on, on both sides of the issue. But this, um, there was a provision stuck into an omnibus bill in Massachusetts that would require all of the localities across the state that provide funding to the MTA, which is the, the transit authority, for the state um, to allow at least a little bit of multifamily housing. And New England um, isn't the most expensive part of the country, but it's arguably one of the, the places with the most exclusionary zoning with very high minimum lot size requirements and very limited multifamily development. So this is an important step to require much of the state to open up to at least a little bit of of multifamily housing. Yeah, I, it, you know, as you're talking about some of the different states that are taking these actions, it strikes me that you've got, you know, a state like Maryland, which is a, a pretty blue state, although it has, you know, a moderate Republican governor with Larry Hogan. And then you've got Vermont and, you know, on the other side, you've got New Hampshire and Nebraska. So this doesn't really seem to be a very partisan 
thing. Like this seems to be like really across the board, you know, it's not just red states or just blue states that are passing some of these reforms. It seems to be a, a pretty good combination. Certainly. And I, I forgot to mention Montana, which has a single family zoning preemption bill this session, which is maybe an even more surprising um, example. But as you said, housing is a very nonpartisan issue. There are very much people on the very progressive end and the very libertarian end of the political spectrum that see the status quo um, as, as presenting serious problems for their policy objectives. Um, but then there are also very much people on both sides of the aisle who support the status quo and uh, don't want to see a change at, at either the local or the state level. Yeah, I, this definitely makes for an interesting political dynamic where you have those like hardcore libertarians who are all for this stuff. And then you've got like the neoliberal groups and, you know, who are all, you know, all for this stuff, too. And it's just it's fun and interesting. So on that note, I have to ask you about this. Uh, if I recall right, I know Colorado, their their governor, Jared Polis, was uh, considering some reforms a few years ago, um, and or maybe it wasn't even that long ago. It just seemed like a long time ago. Um, but if I recall, you were getting into a little discussion with this governor on Twitter. So can, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about that and how what 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 was that about? Yeah, Colorado is my home state, uh, oh, and it's. Okay. it's experienced um, rapid growth, but also unfortunately rapidly increasing housing affordability problems um, in recent decades and years. Um, and Governor Polis um, did uh, lead on some uh, legislation that increased funding for providing subsidized housing. Um, but he's also spoken out against um, uh, reforms at both the local and the state level that would allow more housing um, to be built um, and more, um, more housing that allows people to economize on expensive land. And uh, while I think um, governments have, a, have an important role to play in subsidizing housing for the least well-off households, uh, without addressing the, the barriers of local land use restrictions, you just can't solve this problem with, with subsidies. Right. Or it's going to cost enormously more than it should. Certainly, certainly. Um, but also... If the problem is that you, there just aren't enough housing units for the number of people who want to live in a region, um, you can't solve that by by you right. know picking and choosing who gets to be the beneficiary of some lottery. You just need more housing. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Well, thinking about sort of housing subsidization and stuff, uh, that typically, uh, I mean, states have uh, their own stuff, but federal policy plays a big role there. Uh, and you recently wrote a report about the Biden administration's housing plan. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what, what did the Biden administration, what are they getting, what are they getting right? And, and where do you think they can improve? And, and how does that even, how does that federal level activity affect some of these more local issues? Yeah, there's, there's a huge interaction between policies at the federal level, where the bulk of subsidies for housing come from, mm -hmm. and policies at the, the local level, 
that determine what can actually be built where. Um, I think two of the most important aspects of the, the Biden housing plan are a first expanding um, Section 8 or housing choice vouchers to cover all of the households that qualify them based on their income. Right now, these vouchers are available to households making a certain, uh, making 50% of the, the median income for the region where they live. But there isn't enough money allocated toward the program to fund vouchers for all of those households. So whether or not, um, if you, if you qualify for a voucher, whether or not you actually receive one just depends on luck. Um, and, and in your place on a waiting list and some places have, um, shut down their waiting list because they are so long. Um, and they don't think adding additional people to these lists is, is going to benefit them. Um, so, the, the plan would expand coverage um, by about four times to, to cover all the households who meet those income requirements, um, which can go uh, a really long way in particularly low-demand parts of the country, um, like Rust Belt um, and, and rural locations where we have high housing vacancy rates. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of available housing, but people um, at the low end of the income spectrum still don't have enough money to afford um, the rent that makes it worthwhile for a landlord to rent out that housing. In those places, expanding these vouchers can virtually solve the, the housing affordability problem um, and target it at those households that need it most. But when we're talking about parts of the country that have low vacancy rates and, and supply constraints, um, benef uh, expanding the, the voucher coverage will benefit certainly those low-income households who are suffering the most in the status quo. But it's not going to address the, the supply problem, and ultimately it will make housing affordability problems worse. Um, for people who earn too much to qualify for these vouchers. Um, and it's certainly not just the lowest income households who are suffering from high housing costs in, in the Bay Area or New York or Los Angeles or, you know, many of these most expensive parts of the country. So the Biden plan also endorses a, a bill introduced by um, Senator Cory Booker and House Majority Whip uh, Clyburn. And this bill would um, require that localities that receive community development block grants and also um, that benefit from surface transportation block grants to adopt certain reforms to, that are intended to um, make it easier to build housing in the places where people want to live. Um, and I think this, this makes sense. There's certainly a, a federal interest in um, improving income mobility and geographic mobility so that people can live where their best job opportunities are located. Um, but it, it's really difficult to, to um, get this, these federal funds organized in a way that will, will really encourage local reform. Uh, but it's also really important, um, particularly with the expansion of Section 8 that can increase 
um, housing affordability problems for, for some people potentially um, to, to get these incentives right at the local level um, to liberalize zoning and allow more housing to be built at lower prices. Right. So the federal role here basically says, look, you know, we're giving all of these these subsidies and these cash assistance for these different projects, transportation, uh, you know, Section 8. But in order for you, states, to access these funds, you have to make it so that we're not just throwing away the money. You know, you have to right. make it a lot more efficient. So I think that's that's a I think a good way. I mean, as far as what the federal government can do, I think encouraging things through putting some more strings that are beneficial on some of these funds that they're going to disperse probably is a, a winning way to go about this. Um, do you think that those have a, any chance of passing um, in the near future? Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if the Booker Clyburn bill or um, a- another bill um, there have been several introduced in Congress, and I think we'll likely see um, uh, more continuing to be introduced. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if if one of those passes. Um, some of these bills already have bipartisan support. Um, but the, the issue is um, designing a, a federal program so that it's um, a important to to all permitting jurisdictions across the country and especially to those um, most exclusionary jurisdictions um, and that's tricky because those um, those jurisdictions tend to be very high income um, places that have a, a, their own strong local tax base where federal dollars um, just don't mean as much. Um, additionally, several of the, the bills introduced in Congress focus on localities adopting a specific reform, like reducing parking requirements or allowing accessory dwelling units. But localities that wish to remain exclusionary can often tweak the rules on their books to be compliant with some type of a federal requirement like that without actually making more lower cost um, housing feasible to build. So, for example, if you have a huge minimum lot size requirement, your parking requirements probably aren't binding because people aren't going to have a, a one or two acre yard with no parking. It just doesn't, doesn't right. make sense. <laughs> okay, classic. <laughs> uh, that uh, I think we see that mirrored in some other areas. Um, well, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask what from your perspective, working on this issue for, for a little while now and being very familiar with it, obviously, where, what do you think, if any, uh, how, where should the line be drawn in terms of, do you think that people have any right to decide what goes on in their neighborhood in terms of development? So where where is that line drawn? Do you think that they have any right, maybe a small right, or, or how do you how do you think about that question? Well, personally, I think that that issues um, of of externalities between different land uses that are, are close together are perhaps best addressed through nuisance law. So if there's an identifiable harm that one property owner is um, is causing for another, uh, whether that's pollution or noise or um, what have you, 
um, the, the courts can, can uh, step in and say, um, you know, the, the person causing this, this externality has to compensate their neighbor for the, the harm that they're causing or else stop or relocate um, in, order, in order to um, solve that problem. Um, so many of the, the most, uh, so many of the, the regulations that are having the biggest effect on, on real estate markets and individuals' lives today, though, are uh, restrictions on residential density. And uh, I don't think that um, people are a negative externality. I, I don't think that there's any um, health or safety reason to limit um, the, the density at, at which housing is built. Um, and if, if it's important to homeowners to, to live in a place with low residential density, they have uh, plenty of, of options to seek that out in the U.S. today. And there are also tools available to those homeowners if they want to prevent change in, um, in a, either a new development or the neighborhood where they live. Um, like deed restrictions, for example, can be a, a, a voluntary way for people to opt into a restrictive area where um, only low density development is permitted, uh, commercial development might be banned, um, or whatever is important to those homeowners to include in their deed restrictions. Um, and one thing that we've seen um, in, in going back to Houston where deed restrictions are common is that in areas where land prices have increased a lot, sometimes we see these deed restrictions um, not being renewed going forward because homeowners might value the, the, um, the rules that are in that deed restrictions, but not enough to offset their um, increase in property values that they could get from allowing their property to be redeveloped. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I really like the idea of using nuisance laws. I mean, to me, the best feature of that is that a harm actually has to happen. Like you have to actually show that something happens. It's not just a, oh, well, potentially this might negatively affect me perhaps, you know, in the future. Right. And, and that's enough to stop the whole thing, uh, you know, versus, you know, I can, okay, here, I can demonstrate this is what happened, you know, and, and that's, that seems to me a lot more uh, of an effective way of dealing with that. So you're not, you're not leaving people with no recourse whatsoever, but they actually have to demonstrate that harm rather than talk about how it might potentially come about in the future. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to ask you one one more sort of policy-related uh, question, something I've been thinking about a little bit, and then I'm going to get on to a few more maybe rapid-fire questions for you that I had. Sounds good. So as we're thinking about, you know, how let – let me put it this way. A big, a big problem sort of in the economic mobility uh, field that we are trying to work through and try to think about is we have this phenomenon where – these super productive areas have a lot more job opportunities, a lot more opportunities to earn higher incomes. And then there are some regions or areas um, that are extremely limited in the employment opportunities that they have. Uh, so on the one hand, you have sort of place-based um, solutions to this, you know, things like uh, the opportunity zones, tax credits, right? So this is federal legislation that allows um, 
investors or developers uh, that are going to locate things in this, you know, maybe they're going to place businesses or, or increase investment in certain geographical areas that are deemed distressed or underserved. They get a tax break for investing in those areas. And it's all about revitalizing uh, specific targeted geographic zones. Uh, and then there's also on the flip side of that, you have people like Raj Chetty at Opportunity Insights in Harvard who have been looking at economic mobility and you know what their suggestion is these people just need to move uh and there's there's also some uh commentators kevin williamson at national review is, is probably the one that comes to mind but basically their argument is you know these places are uh the employment models that are there are have gone by the wayside those jobs aren't coming back it's not worth trying to force that in there we should make it easier for people to relocate and move out of those areas so there hasn't really been a strong policy consensus on what that policy might look like to help make it easier for people to move. I know, I think Chetty has um, recommended that certain zip codes that meet certain requirements for economic distress, the people that live there be given vouchers for moving. And so it's just sort of like a lump sum, you know, cash payment to be able to move. Uh, other people have recommended maybe turning unemployment benefits that you would normally get on a weekly basis. Um, you can, instead of getting them on a weekly basis, you can opt for a relocation assistance where they would pool, uh, you know, some of those, you know, so rather than waiting eight weeks or, or, you know, however, however many weeks it is before you get a new job, you can say, I'm going to take 12 weeks worth of benefits, get that. And I can use that for, you know, a security deposit and first month's rent on someplace in a new, a new, more economically vibrant area. So I guess my question is, have you heard of, of policies like that? If, if so, or what, what do you think of policies like that? And, and how do you think that interacts with sort of the housing policy stuff that you've been working on? Yeah, um, I, yeah, I've heard of, of many or, or all of, of those policies. Um, I tend to favor um, individual-based assistance much more than place-based assistance um, because I think that, that assistance targeted to individuals does a, a much better job of reaching those in need um, and doesn't attempt to um, alter decision-making in the way that um, place-based policy does. Um, and I, I think that, that individuals know where their best opportunities are located, whether that's staying put where they have um, family and, and other social ties, um, or whether that's moving um, to a new location where their economic opportunities might be better. Um, and by providing assistance to individuals, um, they are in a position to um, make that decision rather than uh, policy trying to sway them one way or the other. Um, but it, I, it's also, I think, important to note that a lot of, of government policies um, are encouraging people uh, to stay where they are. Um, one of the most important ones might be the 30-year fixed rate mortgage that um, means that people who buy a house in a location that then declines might be in a really difficult position um, because their, their home value is declining. They might not be able to afford um, a similar house or any housing in the location of their choice. Um, and that 
that house can really make them um, feel stuck or, or be stuck in the location where they are. Um, so I think policymakers should be very cautious about rules that are, are going to make it difficult for people to be nimble enough to move when it makes sense for them to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely uh, in that camp as well. I think, you know, people are going to make that decision and they're going to know better than anyone else what's, what the trade-offs are for their particular situation. Um, well, before we totally wrap up here, I wanted to do a few rapid-fire questions, like I mentioned. So I, I'm going to start off by asking, what's the craziest restriction that you've seen or maybe maybe the craziest objection to new development that you've come across as you've been working on this stuff? Can you think of one? Yeah, I mean, I think San Francisco probably has to, to take the cake here. There are um, just lots of examples that would would seem outlandish to people in, in other parts of the country. Like once a development is proposed, uh, residents might step in and try to get the existing structure um, landmarked as historic, even if to most people it would seem like it has no historic value whatsoever. Um, uh, San Francisco also has a lot of requirements for shadow studies, which is like, yes, buildings do cause shadows, you mean like literal shadows, like yes. from the sun shadows? Okay. <laughs> yes, literal shadows. Um, but then also, if you if you look at, at pictures of of people hanging out in public spaces, it's really common for people to um, to all be gathered in the shade. So yeah. <laughs> shadows aren't aren't necessarily a bad thing. Oh my gosh, that's that's so ridiculous. Okay, well that perfectly answers that one. Um, well, let me ask then too, if you. If you had the opportunity to speak to every lawmaker in the country at every level of government about zoning and land use and housing policy, but you can only tell them one thing, what's what's the one thing you'd want every single one of them to know? Hmm, that's that's a tough one. Uh, I guess I would would just say that um, that rules that limit how much housing can be built and um, that limit uh, low-cost housing specifically, have really painful consequences for households, um, including uh, increasing homelessness rates um, for children in, in the U.S. Um, these, these rules cause really painful problems um, without oftentimes having a, a good um, justification for doing so. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's so sad to see some of that. Sometimes you see people where, you know, uh, you have these rules on, on like the certain specifications of what the housing must look like, these like minimum requirements. And that's great. And maybe people should, you know, be all, it'd be great if everybody could afford those minimum requirements. But at some point, is it better for people to have maybe suboptimal housing or none at all? And that's right. kind of the position, like that's the real world choice that you're faced with. It's not, you know, oh, if we pass this law, then everyone's going to be able to live in this like bare minimum level of housing. It just doesn't work that way. Exactly. So that's a good one. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to maybe ask one sort of final question here uh, about some of this stuff. If, if a person were listening to this or they're thinking about, you know, how can I help uh, improve housing affordability? How can I, how can I make sure that in my area, my neighborhood, 
uh, we're allowing developments to happen uh, for more people to be able to get in and have access um, to these neighborhoods. Where should someone start? Like, where where would they start? Where would you recommend that they begin researching or or maybe even begin taking action? Where would you recommend they, you know, begin? Well, we, we talked about um, NIMBYs earlier, but there are also organizations called YIMBY groups. That stands for Yes in My Backyard, um, which are just generally... Um, pro-housing groups that um, that advocate for the benefits of um, development. So I would definitely encourage people to find out if there's already a um, YIMBY group in in their um, city or, or region, um, and if not, they, they might be interested in, in starting one or even just um, going to attend some of the meetings that are, are held by um, their local planning commission or, or city council to discuss proposed developments and consider weighing in. If, if lots of people are objecting to a development, especially if it's if something like multifamily housing, um, uh, another voice that says, wait, there are, there are going to be benefits to, to our community and to the people who live in this building if this is allowed to um, go forward. Um, because so often there, there isn't anyone speaking to those benefits. And if there is, it's uh, probably the developer who is in a very um, a sympathetic uh, person from a, a public relations point of view. Yeah. Yeah, probably not. No, I think that's that's really good advice. I mean, just like with a lot of policy, a lot of what happens is just determined by the people who show up. Um, and exactly. yeah, that's, that's how it goes. Uh, well, Emily, I really appreciated this. Uh, where where can people learn more about your research and maybe keep up to date with what you're doing and, and follow these and track some of these issues in the state? So where where can they find you and, and your uh, what you're focused on? Uh, yeah, you can um, find most of my work at the uh, Mercatus Center, uh, where I, I publish research, and you can also find links to um, some of the, the work that I've done in other outlets there, too. Uh, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. My handle's EBW Hamilton, and I'm always sharing um, what I'm thinking about and working on there. All right. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Emily. I appreciate it. We'll have to do this again sometime and uh, catch up on all the progress that's being made. <laughs> thanks so much, Ben. Great talking with you. Thanks.